Miss the show? No worries. On point and on this podcast, Jean Charest announcing he's going to run to become leader of the Conservative Party. He claims he's the only one who has the experience to win a majority, but his political and private sector experience may be what does his leadership bid in. You know, Charest is about as red a Tory as you can get, who believes in things like carbon taxes and tried to get Huawei 5G into the country, but it's his record on raising taxes and his support of carbon taxes while he ran in the province of Quebec as well as uh, with Brian Mulroney that's giving front runner Pierre Polyevre a lot to chew on. Speaking of, uh, Pierre Polyevre is the front runner in this race. He joined me to talk about what he's running on and why he's not at all worried about what his critics say when they call him Stephen Harper with fangs. Ukrainian officials are increasingly concerned about nuclear fallout of the infamous Chernobyl plant. The power has been cut to this particular facility, and there are worries that if they can't get in and fix it and get those cooling systems running again, we could be headed for another nuclear meltdown. meltdown. We'll talk about that with an expert who you know, are trying to keep an eye on this thing. And the UK leveling sanctions against one of Vladimir Putin's closest oligarchs, the man many believe is managing his $200 billion fortune. Will Canada follow suit? What are we waiting for? We'll talk about this man, who he is, how much money he's got, and how much money he's got particularly in this country. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson. To all my followers uh, who are joining us now, welcome. And, uh, and welcome to this leadership campaign for the Conservative Party of Canada and for the future of Canada. We hope that you uh, will follow us, but even better, join our team and join a group of men and women who are built to win. Jean Charest jumps into the race, uh, limping out of the gate. Alex Pierce are with you on this Thursday, March 10th. Great to have you here. Been yet another busy day on the Ukraine file, which uh, it literally changes by the minute. Sadly, never for the better. Um, this thing just goes from bad to worse. The new concerns uh, tonight would be that Vladimir Putin uh, could be preparing to unleash chemical weapons on the Ukrainian people. And it also comes on the same day as we hear that Chernobyl has no power and the Ukrainian government saying, look, we need to do repairs, we need a ceasefire, otherwise we could have a radiation leak. So we're going to talk about those stories because they're big, and also the um, latest round of sanctions and the target. The UK has now hit a key oligarch who said to directly manage Putin's $200 billion fortune. But he also has very big um, investments here in Canada. And so I was hoping we'd get an announcement today that Canada's following suit, and I'm not sure why this hasn't happened yet. And so we'll, um, we'll talk about the significance of who this is and if it will hurt. And then, of course, late today we learned that... Uh, President Vladimir Zelensky will, in fact, address our parliament by Zoom next Tuesday, March 15th. So mark that day on the calendar because it will be a fairly historical moment for a man who's captured the attention of everyone in the world. But it is official. Yes, the best, uh, no, I'd say it's the worst kept secret. John Charest becomes the second person to officially enter the conservative leadership race. He's going to have a big launch party in Calgary tonight, but uh, sure hope it's uh, more exciting than that message you heard off the top, which was what Sheree put out on his Twitter today. I mean, this is a guy who wants to take on the Liberals in 2022, and, and his introduction to the race sounds like a, a guy just organizing a Zoom meeting. Uh, just take a listen to the tone of that. To all my followers uh, who are joining us now, welcome. 
and uh, and welcome to this leadership campaign for the Conservative Party of Canada and for the future of Canada. We hope that you uh, will follow us, but even better, join our team and join a group of men and women who are built to win. Yeah, sorry. Um, his slogan is built to win. Uh, the guy's not even excited about his own pitch. <laughs> I mean, he's very new to social media, clearly. He had his account set up on Wednesday, but if his idea is built to win, he's going to have to sharpen his social media game because Sheree's a guy who's been out of politics for, what, a couple of decades? And he's going up against someone who's very current in politics, is a favorite of the base, and is pretty savvy online because uh, you look at Pierre Polyevra's Twitter, he's got two, 323,000 followers to Sheree's 6,000. And uh, he's out there messaging every day. He's putting up endorsements. He's got uh, at least a third of his own party backing him. And when you compare the launches and the tone of it, remember, the, here was the tone of part of Polly Everett's leadership announcement back on February 5th. You were the boss. That's why I'm running for prime minister, to put you back in charge of your life. Together, we will make Canadians the freest people on earth, with freedom to build a business without red tape or heavy tax. Freedom to keep the fruits of your labor and share them with loved ones and neighbors. Freedom from the invisible thief of inflation. Freedom to raise your kids with your values. Freedom to make your own health and vaccine choices. Freedom to speak without fear and freedom to worship God in your own way. A brand, strategy, clear message, uh, very slickly produced. And that message right there was downloaded 4.3 million times in 48 hours, which is massive in Canadian politics. And so, sure, Paul Ever can be polarizing, but look, he's a known brand, and he's a very effective communicator, whereas you've got Sheree, who is banking on his name recognition and his political experience to win this race. Except, you know, for me, you know, Sheree comes from a political climate that had no social media, there was not nearly the political division or the rhetoric that we are dealing with now. And of course, he's got political experience in both provincial and federal politics, but he also has a record that a lot of conservatives, certainly the younger side of the base, are going to reject, period. Because during his time uh, under Brian Mulroney, I mean, he calls himself a, a fiscal conservative, but yet he helped create the GST. And then as a premier in Quebec, he supported a hike to the PST. He supported a fuel tax and an annual health fee. Plus, he also supports carbon taxes. So he's selling himself as this fiscal conservative, but then his record gives uh, Polyevra, you know, a lot to chew on because Polyevra is actually fighting cost of living issues. He's been fighting inflation for a long, long time. Uh, and he says, and he is telling people he will cancel the carbon tax. But I think the biggest challenge Sheree is going to face is his record on China. I mean, because he's done a lot of private work for Huawei, uh, supported its 5G bid into this country, so he was trying to get it into the network. But he was also part of a legal team trying to get Meng Wanzhou released while she was living in her mansion. So, you know, he's going to have to defend something that I think a lot of the base will find indefensible. Like, it, it was an automatic turnoff for me. And if you look at the polling, Leger has Polyevra way out in front. He's at 41%. Jean Charest comes in at 10%. Peter McKay, who has not announced what he's going to do, is at 9%. Patrick Brown, 3%. Leslin Lewis, 2%. And then there's another 33% who are 
not decided. But when it comes to leadership campaigns, it, it, it all comes down to, you know, who can sell the most memberships. And so Paul Ever has had a pretty big head start on that. But if Patrick Brown jumps in, which he's apparently going to announce on Sunday, um, he will be up against someone who's proved to be very organized and who also has name recognition and is currently in politics. But apparently Brown, who's got a 25-year friendship with Sheree, because they're both uh, progressives, they both talk the same language, they've struck this deal not to attack each other during this race. And apparently they're going to mark each other as a second choice on their ballots to ensure that the more pragmatic choice wins. And so the thing about leadership campaigns is that the front runner, the fan of the, uh, you know, the, the base, the one that everyone loves, can still actually lose if those running behind can convince their supporters to mark anyone but Poilievre as a second choice. And then you got Leslie Lewis, who is also a favorite of the base, and she's going to lock up the social conservative supporters, but they've already said they're not going to support Poilievre because of his pro-choice views. So I still think right now it is Poilievre's to lose, but really the only way he secures this win is if he sells the most ballots and wins outright on the first vote. And I know a lot of critics are going to write him off uh, as too angry. Media will cast him as a Trump-like populist. You know, he's taken the party down a path to hell. I, I don't actually see it that way. Polly Everett's sloganeering, as the critics call it, uh, has tapped into an anger in this country. You know, a part of the population that feels no one's listening to them. They're turning to people like Maxime Bernier, who's still very disorganized. So he can translate that anger into membership votes and that these polling numbers stick. You know, he could very well win on that first vote. But nonetheless, we've got a few, you know, few people in the race. I think it'll make it more interesting. Vote is September 10th. Story's very much unwritten. To all my followers uh, who are joining us now, welcome. And, uh, and welcome to this leadership campaign for the Conservative Party of Canada and for the future of Canada. We hope that you uh, will follow us, but even better, join our team and join a group of men and women who are built to win. All righty. Well, that is uh, Jean Charest with um, a pretty, I think, calm entry to the race. He wants his job as leader of the Conservative Party. But even before he made the worst kept secret official, the front runner was already taking aim at Charest as a conservative of convenience. You know, this blast from the past who's out of touch with a modern version of the party. And up until last week, Pierre Polyevra had the field to himself. I actually thought it was just going to be a coronation. So he's had a big head start to build up support. He's had a ton of endorsements, almost over, I think, a third of the party has now stepped up behind him. But Sheree's now in. Word is Leslie Lewis. Patrick Brown will jump in. And we still work, wait for uh, Mr. McKay to decide. But leadership battles are not like election campaigns. And so Pierre Polyev is the heavy favorite with the base, certainly. But there's so much politics within these races that the favorite does not always win. And it's all about how many memberships they can sell. Question becomes, can Mr. Polyevra sell the most? He joins us now from the uh, kind of the campaign tour. You're on the road kind of permanently right now on this leadership campaign, correct? I am. How has it been going? What is the reception? I mean, I, I saw another um, MP coming out, uh, one of your uh, party members coming out in support. You are gaining quite a bit of support. You've had a good head start ahead of your competition um, in getting support. Why is it that you are, are able to rack up so much support early on? Well, because people want to take back control of their lives. Um, the 
government has gotten big and bossy. Uh, it uh, over the last two years, it's told people where they can go, how they can cough, basically made it impossible for people to smile, uh, and uh, forced people uh, against their wishes to uh, accept mandate, mandated uh, vaccines, etc. And whether or not you agree with those measures, you have to agree that never before outside of wartime has government had so much power. And then people feel like they've lost control of where they live. I mean, the average house costs $836,000. So there's no way that your average millennial can afford to buy a home. 32-year-old men living in mom's basement. Um, single moms feel like they've lost control of their kids' diets because it's too expensive to buy food. Um, with prices up another $1,000 this year. And people have lost the control of their mobility because uh, gas prices are now hitting a buck 80 a liter, two bucks in Vancouver, and people can't afford to drive anywhere. And, you know, this is uh, the result, of course, of all the money printing and the taxes that Trudeau has applied. And I've been the leading champion uh, against inflation in favor of more economic freedom and giving people back control of their lives. That's why I'm running for prime minister, make Canada the freest place on earth so people can take back control of their lives. Yeah, you've made clear you're not even running for leader of the party. Your top job is uh, is the prime minister's job. Um, you know, Jean Charest will not be your only competition, but you've made pretty clear already that you don't see him as a conservative. I mean, do you have concerns about dividing the party, you know, alienating parts of the base who may like a guy like Jean Charest or may like a guy like a Patrick Brown, may not be so certain about a Pierre Paul Lievre, and who might say, well, why is he not calling me a conservative? Well, Jean Charest called himself a liberal for 10 years, but it's not just the name liberal, it's the <laughs> liberal policies that he endorsed. He raised the sales tax in Quebec um, on Quebec consumers. I voted to cut the sales tax federally. He brought in a carbon tax and supports increasing gas prices even higher than they are. I voted against a carbon tax and I believe in lower gas prices. He uh, supported a billion dollar long gun registry to target law abiding and licensed duck hunters and farmers. Uh, I opposed that and instead favor tougher laws on gun criminals. So his positions have been liberal. It's not just that he called himself a liberal, it's that he acted like a liberal and governed like a liberal. And frankly, the most divisive thing we could have is for someone who believes in liberal policies to take over the Conservative Party and drive out the millions of voters who think that taxes should be lower and that we should um, leave more money in the pockets of hardworking people. What do you say then to critics who will say, look, Paul Evra as leader of the party will keep conservatives in opposition. Um, I read one hot, hot headline that described you as Harper, but with fangs bared. So the criticism from the critics or the media may be that you're too polarizing uh, in a time where we need to have uh, you know, divisions healed. And so what do you say to those critics? Well, I'm a, obviously a unifying figure for conservatives by virtue of the fact that I have won seven consecutive elections in a big city, Ontario, riding. I'm the only conservative elected in the, the, the city of Ottawa. I've won every single time I've run. Um, and I twice got the highest vote count in Ontario, once beat the defend, liberal defense minister when I was 25 years old. So I know how to unite conservatives to win an election. And Mr. Charest has a track record of losing. Uh, when he was briefly PC leader, he finished last place, dead last. 
behind the Liberals, Reform Party, NDP, and Bloc. Um, and he lost uh, his seat uh, and his premiership in Quebec because of, he was so unpopular there. Um, I can unite the country. I'm from the West, but I'm elected in Ontario. I speak both languages and can win a debate against Trudeau in French and English. I also speak to the, uh, the singular principle that unites all conservatives, which is freedom. You know, uh, individual freedom, economic freedom, and other Let me step freedoms. in here, though, because the bottom line is, and conservatives have struggled with this, and I know because I live in downtown Toronto, it's mm -hmm. winning over the hearts and the minds of, uh, you know, the soccer mom who, you know, they, they vote liberal in the vote-rich regions of, of Toronto, uh, the, the GTA. Um, in Quebec. And so that, that's who you have to be able to win over. The leadership's one thing, but you've got to be able to win the votes to bring this. And I, so I think the base loves you. They support you. Polling shows that you're the heavy favorite. But it's about elections at the end of the day, as you know. And conservatives continually keep losing them because they say that they're conservative and Not then they me. run as something else. You say what? Not me. Well, I, I, I've been winning them. I've been winning in a suburban Ontario riding for 17 years. I'm undefeated in a big Ontario city in seven elections. Um, and so, um, you know, how do you win over suburban, you say soccer moms? The answer is the biggest single issue in the next election in Toronto is going to be the cost of living. This, this suburban soccer mom wants to be able to afford to drive her kid to soccer, wants to be able to afford to drive herself to her job, wants her eventual uh, grown-up child to be able to afford a house. I have been the nation's leading voice against inflation. I cut, I helped cut the sales tax and I, I'm going to get rid of the carbon tax, all of which will bring down the cost of living and make life more affordable. And I will win a national election, including with a breakthrough in the city of Toronto on the cost of living issue, which is the most important issue in Canada right now. You've also said that you are all in on pipelines, that that is something that you will get done. It's been impossible to get them done in 20 years, and we're paying the price for that. As you well know, we're in a situation now where energy is now a security issue, and we can't be a solution for the world. That, that might be a tough sell outside the base, given the climate change and, and the narrative that you're still going to be up against. So how do you get done what others have not been able to? Well, the government gatekeepers who block pipelines have not done anything for climate change. All they've done is forced more uh, foreign oil imports into Canada. So instead of using the most responsible and ethical energy in the world, which comes from Alberta, Saskatchewan and Newfoundland, we're importing millions of barrels of oil from Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, and um, uh, as recently as 2019, uh, also Russia. We also know that Europe is intensely uh, dependent on Russia because we can't get Canadian energy across the Atlantic. So the best thing we could do for our environment is re to repatriate more of the production here to Canada and produce it with low carbon technology of which we are the world leader. That will reduce global emissions. It will also increase the value of our dollar because when we sell more of our energy on the world market, it brings up our dollar and that will increase the purchasing power of Canadians. Uh, and, and what we need is purchasing power so that we can bring down the cost of living, make life more affordable. And that's part of my common sense plan to tackle inflation.
I wish I had more time. I'm going to run out of time, but I want to make sure, you know, because we're in a leadership uh, battle. This is not an election. And so they're very different for the public who don't probably follow this thing. It's all about getting memberships, which you're selling right now. Patrick Brown's expected to uh, jump in. Apparently he has struck some kind of deal with Mr. Charest that they will back each other no matter what. And if Leslie Lewis throws her hat into the ring, um, it's not known if her people in the social conservative side would support you. And so it's really going to be a battle where Pierre Polyever has to sell the most memberships um you know it, that could be standing in your way and so how do you propose to do that well my message is one of putting people back in control of their lives uh, by making canada the freest country on earth on earth and i believe that will inspire members to sign up especially inspire our young people who've had their freedoms taken away over the last year. Uh, and secondly, I have a common sense plan to, to, to tackle inflation and make life affordable so people can take back control of uh, where they live, what they eat, and how they can gas their cars. Those messages are going to resonate and lead to membership signups and also help me win the next election and become prime minister. This will be my final question because I'm, I'm already over time. But but Mr. Polly, ever since you jumped in this race, the world has changed. Um, we are heading into a possible world war. We don't know if this man will use nuclear weapons. And so how has that changed or what has changed in your path on this leadership? Are you looking at defense spending? Are you looking at NATO spending? What are some of the things that you're looking at that you didn't have to think about necessarily back on February 5th? We have to rebuild our armed forces so that we have the capacity to confront thugs and dictators like Vladimir Putin, we also need to, to become um, a su an energy superpower to supply the democratic world with the fuel it needs to break its independent, break its dependence on the dirty dictators. Uh, those are two things that we could do to contribute to international security. And I've got a common sense plan to make those things happen. Nonetheless, it's a long road until the vote, but uh, I thank you so much for sh uh, sharing your ideas with us and coming on the show. And of course, uh, we'll have you on again. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. That's uh, Pierre Pauly Everett joining us. So he is the uh, one of two now candidates in the race for leadership of the Conservatives. And of course, um, it's a long road all during the summer. These guys are going to have to be selling memberships and uh, trying to get their message out and all the rest of the leaders also have um, a welcome mat if they want to come here on the show. But Mr. Pauly Everett is here first uh, to talk about his race. I'm concerned, I'm, I'm worried, uh, but uh, uh, I mean, we, we, we cannot, uh, you know, stop and we must continue looking at it and seeing what can be done. And this is exactly what I'm doing at the moment. There you go. One of the many, many nuclear experts, wide eyed and worried. Late today, the Biden administration uh, warning Russia may now use chemical or biological weapons against Ukrainians after uh, Russia accused Ukraine of running chemical and biological weapon labs that have U.S. support. Nothing, of course, of that is true. It is propaganda, but that is something that maybe Russia will use to justify that kind of attack. But we get that news on the same day that we're getting this growing urgency from Ukrainian officials that they need a temporary ceasefire so that they can go in and repair the power lines, the power lines that have been damaged, but which are needed to keep the Chernobyl plant active. And right now it doesn't have power. Uh, there are backup generations in there, but apparently they only last about 48 hours. And so the concern is that if the cooling systems can't cool the spent nuclear fuel rods, well, then we could get a radiation leak. This is a 2,600 kilometer 
uh, Chernobyl exclusion zone. This is the same site of the 1986 meltdown. I do not think we want a repeat of history. In fact, I know we don't. Jeff Merrifield is a former commissioner of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. He joins us now. Jeff, good to have you. Alex, thank you very much for having me this evening. And you actually know this site quite well, so you have been there. Have you been there a number of times, and in what capacity? Um, I, I would say I've been there once, and admittedly it was about 20 years ago uh, when I was a member of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Uh, I had an opportunity to visit not only the uh, site where the plant was damaged, I toured the general area, uh, and also got to visit one of the plants uh, that ha had not been damaged in the accident. Mm -hmm. So, as I understand, and you can take me through it, because I find this fascinating, because I don't think a lot of us, well, I know I don't a lot, know a lot about nuclear energy and nuclear power and the dangers of it and the benefits of it, all the rest of it. I just know I don't want it leaking out. Um, and so, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we've all of a sudden found ourselves worrying about, you know, n you know military attacks on sites and or things like this, where the power gets cut off and then the cooling systems don't work. So what is the concern in your mind? Because I know that you have, you know, you're one of these leaders in this area um, of how these systems work. What is your concern of what you're hearing out of Chernobyl at this point? Yeah, let me let me sort of walk it through for your, for your viewers. I mean, the original, I, I believe the original entry into the Chernobyl area um, really was, was first intended to try to provide a shortcut for the Russian troops to get to, to Kiev. Um, right. Overall, really is irresponsible for the Russians to have engaged uh, in, in, in surrounding this plant and taking it over. Um, there were reports that the power was out. Um, I've also read reports um, from the IAEA, the uh, Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency today, that indicated that power may have been restored. Uh, they're in the midst of verifying that. I think it is important, mm -hmm. though, to, 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 for, your, for your listeners um, frankly, the fuel at this site uh, has been out of reactors for decades, and they, it is either in spent fuel pools, which contain large volumes of cool water, or uh, has been taken out of those pools and put in dry storage canisters um, where it's safe. Um, because of that circumstance and because the fuel isn't uh, physically uh, hot as it was when it first came out of the reactor, the IAEA, the IAEA, and I agree with this analysis, has basically said that they believe even in the absence of power, there's not going to be a, a severe consequence coming um, from, from the loss of power. Um, that said, uh, there are um, the individuals who are operating the plant. Uh, they appear to be under guard by, by Russian mm -hmm. troops, and, and they're tired. They're, you know, they're, they're, there had been concerns about whether they were getting uh, sufficient uh, nutrition, things of that nature. So it's it's, it's a bad situation, uh, and certainly the Russians should not be conducting themselves in this manner. Yeah, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, they're safe until you do stupid things like launch weapons or cut off the power and those kinds of things. And so, you know, you don't want them in the wrong hands. And, of course, the other site, which was attacked six uh, days ago, and I can't say the name of it, it's Zepor, I, I won't even try to say the name of it, but it's the largest uh, nuclear facility. Pardon me? I believe it's Zaporozhne. There you go. You said it uh, right, and uh, thank you for that. That, as I understand, though, um, is not transmitting data to its headquarters. So how concerning, then, does that become? Well, again, a little different set of circumstances here. Um, from Again, from what we're hearing from uh, IAEA and other sources, there were six reactors at the site. They are a completely mm -hmm. different 
design in the Chernobyl reactors. Uh, they have a large, heavy containment, um, many safety systems involved. So it's, it's, it is a, a much different circumstance than the, those reactors in 1986. Um, several of the units were shut down for regular outages. Um, we're hearing that two of them are operating. And we also are aware uh, through reports that their off-site power lines uh, are operating and therefore there's sufficient power to operate safety systems and keep those plants safe. Now, the point you make is there has been a loss of communications. Uh, there is also some indication that some of the security equipment that is put in um, by the IAEA to protect and, and validate that the, the fuel is where it needs to be um, are not operational. No, no real good explanation why, um, but certainly that's a concern as well. And in your mind, I mean, are there mechanisms outside? Like, I understand there's a lot of control around these facilities. Um, you know, there are gadgets, gadgets, buttons, backup buttons, whatever. I mean, is there a mechanism outside of Ukraine um, where someone, you know, with the oversight of this could flip a switch and make sure that, you know, if, you know, Russia becomes very careless? I mean, is there a mechanism to kind of undo the damage and or stop a disaster if, in fact, Russia continues to be so reckless? Because it's not just Chernobyl where I, I hear that the staff is under a lot of duress. Uh, those at this particular um, nuclear like these people are working you know at gunpoint under the enemy and you know it's very stressful so is there a mechanism um, on the outside that can kind of stop anything bad from happening um well a couple a couple of things you said there i'd like to unpack they are they do appear to be under guard at the um site it does from what um we've been reading through iea they have been able to have various shifts of workers, so they have been able to get more rest. Um, there aren't reports of, of food shortages. So, so I think the situation there, um, at least from what it sounds like, is a bit better. There is no, to your question, you know, there is no magic switch outside uh, Ukraine to, to change things. Those plants are operated uh, with an extraordinary uh, series of, of safety systems that are in intended to make sure that the fuel, both in the in the uh, reactor itself as well as the spent fuel pool, remains uh, cool and and uh, and safe uh, and fully flooded. Uh, those systems, uh, from what we are able to discern, are uh, operating appropriately. Uh, and there aren't there aren't concerns. Uh, well, there aren't uh, challenges that we're aware of at this point. But those those reactors are operated. Uh, by the, the reactor operators on site, uh, and they are the ones who will be working to maintain the, uh, and, and protect their security. Um, that said, I would say, you know, as irresponsible as the Russian action has been to take over these sites, uh, I, I don't think there's an indication that they would cause, uh, deliberately cause damage to the, these reactors. Um, and indeed, given the experience that they had with Chernobyl, uh, I think mm -hmm. they would be... Uh, uh, and, and their desire to take over Ukraine, over Ukraine. I don't think I think I don't think there's a desire to cause uh, deliberate damage in that regard. But they could cause other issues. I mean, these are what uh, power Ukraine and flipping off the power. I mean, they could ultimately put that country into darkness and cold. No. Well, no, that's, a, that's an excellent point. And I think ultimately that's the reason why they took over the plant. I think yeah. they want to be control. The power supplies, uh, nuclear represents about 50 percent of the total power in the Ukraine. And I think to your point, I think they do want to control uh, and be able to turn uh, turn on and off that grid as they feel feel fit. 
in order to achieve what is ultimately their, their gain to try to take over uh, Kiev and other parts of the country. There have been nuclear disasters in our time, Fukushima, obviously, at Chernobyl. So it's not like it never happens. But we have been very lucky, as you well know, for decades uh, to have peace in this area. We haven't had to have drills or worry about like the day after all that kind of stuff. Here we are in 2022. And I take it you likely didn't have this on your card as things to worry about. But what is right now at, at this point, what's your greatest concern about the, the potential for nuclear um, kind of issues and or threats? Well, I, I think my biggest concern is Zaporizhian right now. It, it appears to be stable. Um, I think, obviously, if, if off-site power is cut off to the plant, there are emergency diesel generators that can provide that backup power, um, but they do have limited amounts of, of diesel fuel that would be available, so there would be a, a need to make sure that that's uh, maintained. Uh, I, I think the biggest concern I have, whether it's at that plant or at the three other sites uh, at, which, at which Ukraine operates nuclear generation uh, is, is, you know, attacks undertaken by the Russians that could in, inadvertently cause problems. Right. Um, it's saw in the news there was, uh, when, when, the, when the Zaporizhian plant was taken over, uh, there was uh, damage to a training building outside, uh, away from the reactor itself. Uh, explosives were used, artillery, there were fires. That, that's that's irresponsible behavior to be doing near a nuclear plant. Uh, I don't think that I don't think they intended to do any damage to the plant because they obviously could have done that in a variety of ways. Yeah. But the inadvertent activities by unknowing soldiers it could really cause 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 problems. You've been a wealth of information. I very much appreciate you kind of setting the record straight because I know there's a lot of concern and a lot of fear out there. But I uh, really appreciate your time, Jeff. Well, even really fair, great questions. Um, unfortunately, I think some um, some folks who don't like nuclear power use this as an opportunity to uh, to say some things and, and cause uh, probably an excess amount of fear. I certainly want your listeners to know there's a lot of protection there and a long way yeah. ways to go to a problem. So thank you. Yeah, and overall, there's a, a very good record, certainly in our country, for nuclear safety, but uh, it, it does get a bad rap. Jeff, uh, we'll probably lean on you again, so don't be surprised if your phone rings, but thanks so much. My pleasure, anytime. That is uh, Jeff Merrifield, who's the former commissioner of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I'm going to go to his place if there's a nuclear meltdown, because I bet you that guy knows what he's going to do, right? He would know what to do. All right, so the, there you go. hope that uh, kind of fills in some of the blanks, because there's so much misinformation about this issue, and it gets scary, and it gets a bit heady. But uh, so far, it looks like we don't have too much to worry about, uh, of course, unless there's some kind of dumb accident. Well, it's happened finally. One of Vladimir Putin's closest confidants, the man said to manage his $200 billion fortune, has now been sanctioned by the UK. This is a guy known as Roman Abramovich. He owns the Chelsea FC, a team he put up for sale last week. And now he's been told by the British government that he can't sell that club and that that club is going to be under operating under some very strict rules that will stop Abramovich or Russia from benefiting at all from it. This is a guy who's said to be worth about $12 billion. He made his money in oil and aluminum, but he hasn't been sanctioned here yet in Canada, where he also has a lot of investments in aluminum and steel in Alberta and Saskatchewan in a company called Evraz. So it's interesting that the UK has now sanctioned him, but will this move the Trudeau government to follow suit? Marcus Kolga is a senior fellow at the Macdonald Luray Institute. Center for Canada's Advanced Interests Abroad. He's also the founder of Disinfo Watch. He joins us now. Good to have you. Thanks for having me on, Alex. 
All right. So you have been calling for sanctions well before this war even started. But nonetheless, um, you know, we haven't leveled sanctions at all the bad guys yet. But how significant is Roman Abramovich? Uh, he's incredibly significant. He, Roman Abramovich uh, was listed by Alexei Navalny. This is the uh, Russian anti-corruption crusader who, uh, who was poisoned by Vladimir Putin a year and a half ago who's now in a, uh, in a Soviet or sorry, a Russian gulag um, for his uh, anti-corruption activities. He was named by Alexei Navalny last January as being the number one oligarch that Western governments should target if they want to change the behavior of Vladimir Putin. So he's, he's really significant um, for many reasons. Um, he's seen as being very close to Vladimir Putin. Um, when uh, Boris uh, Yeltsin was president of Russia in the late 1990s, it said that uh, Abramovich actually nominated Putin to be Yeltsin's successor. Mm. Um, so that's that's how close uh, this guy is to uh, to Vladimir Putin. And, and as you mentioned, uh, this guy back in it was 2008, his company Evroz, which is the largest Russian steel company, it bought uh, five steel processing plants in Canada. The total value of that deal back in 2008 was $2.4 billion. Um, so the assets that Roman Abramovich owns right here in Canada are significant. His ties to Putin are significant. And even the Russian, uh, Russian activists like Alexei Navalny are saying, we got to go after him. The fact that he's not on our list uh, yet uh, is, is deeply concerning. As you mentioned, I've been calling for Abramovich to be considered for our list for some time now. The fact that the U.S. Have, or the U.K. has done it, Canada hasn't, should raise some eyebrows. Okay, so explain to me how this works, because, you know, you would think that there'd be some discussions between countries when they're doing this. And so how, you know, what power does do the British sanctions, let's say, have against the oligarchs versus the Canadian sanctions? Do they not all work the same? And why would all these countries not act in unison? Well, look, I'm, I'm sure that there have been uh, some discussions between the British and the uh, Canadian government about this. Uh, it's not like Abramovich isn't on the radar. Uh, you know, I think that you, along with other um, uh, Canadian journalists, have been mentioning his name quite intensively over the past couple of weeks. So I'm sure there's some sort of discussions. Um, why he hasn't been named, why he wasn't named simultaneously to Canada's list, um, is really uh, anyone's guess. So maybe we'll find out a, a little bit later, but, uh, but uh, it's, it is indeed uh, a little bit surprising that uh, Canada hasn't announced, did not announce um, Abramovich or new sanctions when the UK did. There's no question that the sanctions are having an effect. I mean, you just need only look at you know Russia's economy and all the rest of it. There, there is a fallout to this, but yeah. you and several others are saying, look, this doesn't go far enough. Bill Browder has said, look, you've got to cut the head off this snake. You've got to basically yeah. bleed them dry, kill them. Uh, Terry Glavin has been saying the same thing. Why isn't that happening? Like this guy, Putin, is clearly not stopping. You know, when we first started talking about this, Marcus, it was like, well, OK, he might take those two kind of yeah. states that he had declared independent. Well, now he's bombing children's hospitals. He doesn't even care about international war rules or, you know, he doesn't care. He's not yeah. stopping. So what are we waiting for? Yeah, no, I mean, this is a good question. And look, uh, you know, I was calling for these sanctions uh, already four or five years ago um, because I saw what was coming along with a few other people, and you and I have been talking about it for just as long. Um, you know, it, we do have to hit him uh, now. We have to hit those 
those oligarchs that do have significant assets in this country, especially someone like Roman Abramovich. He is that close to Putin. Why we haven't done it, I think it's probably there's politics involved. Um, I, I, I would venture to guess that the mayor of Regina is probably concerned about the employees at that steel plant. Um, but those worries are misplaced. Look, um, this guy, the, the value of those steel plants in Western Canada, if it was $2.4 billion uh, you know, in 2008, it's probably, that value probably exceeds um, three, maybe $4 billion. I mean, mm-hmm. It's a lot of money. And um, you know, the, the sanctions, if we place them on Abramovich, would prevent him from selling and profiting uh, from the sale of those, those companies. It would freeze his ability to access those assets. Um, it would not cause any disruptions. This guy is not going to shut down the plant or order anyone to shut mm-hmm. down the plant uh, because of these sanctions. He wants to maintain that value in those plants until there's a change, until there's, a, there's quite frankly, regime change, because that's the only thing that's going to lift these sanctions at this point. Um, and maybe it'll motivate him to work with others to get rid of uh, this genocidal maniac that's running Russia right now. Um, but those, but I think that anyone in those affected provinces should be concerned about those jobs. Those jobs are going to remain there no matter what sanctions are placed on Abramovich at this point. So sanctioning Abramovich, uh, does this, um, you know, does this then directly sanction the holdings he has of, of Putin? And, and does, do you think that this starts to become the game changer or are we still not going far enough? Look, I mean, it's it's being reported by several journalists that uh, Abramovich has, uh, and it's been alleged that he acts as basically Vladimir Putin's person, that he's holding on to Vladimir Putin's assets. That's never really been proven. It's going to be hard to prove. But, you know, given his proximity to Putin, the fact that they've been working together for the past 25 years, the just the, the, sheer, um, the sh- sheer size of his holdings, uh, would mean, yeah, that um, if you're sanctioning uh, sanctioning those assets, these billions of dollars, it's going Putin, Vladimir Putin's going to feel it. Um, yeah. He's going to feel it directly. And so this is something that we really, really need to be doing. Um, you know, so we should have been doing this months ago, years mm-hmm. ago, um, but it's something that we need to do right now. Just quickly before I let you go, Marcus, I mean, you've been studying these issues for decades. Um, now that you see Putin in action, now that you see him being punished and kind of lashing out, does this fit what you thought would happen or is this way beyond what you ever imagined uh you know it's i take no pleasure in saying i told you so but i've been saying i told you so a lot over the past two weeks it's been non-stop mm-hmm. um and like i said i it take I, I take no pleasure in doing saying that um but i would also say that that vladimir putin has gone much further than i thought he would the fact that he's uh he's directing thermobaric bombs these missiles yeah. that suck up all the oxygen in the air and ignite it by a, a, a children's hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is, this is, this is barbarism. Unlike anything that we, at this, the world has ever seen. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's world war two kind of stuff. I mean, that's, that's where we're going. That's where the, all of this belongs. The war crimes are heinous. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I'm shocked. My heart is breaking every single morning when I hear news yeah. hear the news, see the images. Um, and it's not going to stop until, I hate to say it, until we stop food. We've got to yeah. do that. Well, it would be nice for that to happen. But nonetheless, until it does, it's going to be terrible to wake up every day and see this. We'll talk again. Thanks so much. Thanks, Alex. That's Marcus Colvin, who's been talking about this for an awful long time, joining us here. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point.